Chapter One of the Star Chamber, an Historical Romance, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume One, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter Four A Star Chamber Victim. His hunger being somewhat stayed, Sir Francis now found leisure to consider the young man who had so greatly befriended him and, as a means of promoting conversation between them, began by filling his glass from a flask of excellent Bordeaux, of which, in spite of Cyprion's efforts to prevent him, he had contrived to gain possession. The young man acknowledged his courtesy with a smile, praised the wine, and expressed his astonishment at the wonderful variety and excellence of the repast, for which he said he was quite unprepared. It was not Sir Francis's way to feel or express much interest in strangers, and he disliked young men, especially when they were handsome, as was the case with his new acquaintance. But there was something in the youth that riveted his attention. From the plainness of his attire, and a certain not unpleasing rusticity of air, Sir Francis comprehended at once that he was fresh from the country, but he also felt satisfied from his bearing and deportment that he was a gentleman, a term not quite so vaguely applied then as it is nowadays. The youth had a fine frank countenance, remarkable for manly beauty and intelligence, and a figure perfectly proportioned and athletic. Sir Francis set him down as well skilled in all exercises, vaulting, leaping, riding, and tossing the pike. Nor was he mistaken. He also concluded him to be fond of country sports, and he was right in the supposition. He further imagined the young man had come to town to better his fortune, and seek a place at court, and he was not far wrong in the notion. As the wily knight scanned the handsome features of his companion, his clean-made limbs and symmetrical figure, he thought that success must infallibly attend the production of such a fair youth at a court where personal advantages were the first consideration. A likely gallant, he reflected, to take the fancy of the king, and if I aid him with means to purchase rich attire and procure him a presentation, he may not prove ungrateful. But of that I shall make good security. I know what gratitude is, he must be introduced to my lady Suffolk. She will know how to treat him. In the first place, he must cast his country slough. That ill-made doublet of green cloth must be exchanged for one of velvet, slashed in the Venetian style like mine own, with hose stuffed and bombasted according to the mode. A silk stocking will bring out the nice proportions of his leg, though, as I am a true gentleman, the youth has so well formed a limb that even his own villainous yarn coverings cannot disfigure it. His hair is of a good brown color, which the king affects much, and seems to curl naturally, but it wants trimming to the mode, for he is rough as a young colt fresh from pasture, and though he hath not much beard on his chin or upper lip, yet what he hath becomes him well, and will become him better when properly clipped and twisted. Altogether, he is as goodly a youth as one would desire to see. What if he should supplant Buckingham, as Buckingham supplanted Somerset? Let the proud Marquis look to himself. We may work his overthrow yet, and now to question him. After replenishing his glass, Sir Francis addressed himself in his blandest accents, and with his most insidious manner to his youthful neighbor. For a stranger to town, as I conclude you to be, young sir, he said, you have made rather a lucky hit in coming hither today, since you have not only got a better dinner than I, a constant frequenter of this French ordinary, ever saw served here, though the attendance is abominable, as you must have remarked, that rascally Cyprion deserves the bastinado. 
but your civility and good manners have introduced you to one who may, without presumption, affirm that he hath the will and it may be the ability to serve you, if you will only point out to him the way. Nay, worthy sir, you are too kind, the young man modestly replied. I have done nothing to merit your good opinion, though I am happy to have gained it. I rejoice that accident has so far befriended me as to bring me here on this festive occasion, and I rejoice yet more that it has brought me acquainted with a worthy gentleman like yourself, to whom my rustic manners prove not to be displeasing. I have too few friends to neglect any that chance may offer, and as I must carve my own way in the world and fight for a position in it, I gladly accept any hand that may be stretched out to help me in the struggle. Just as I would have it, Sir Francis thought, the very man I took him for. As I am a true gentleman, mine shall not be wanting, my good youth, he added aloud, with apparent cordiality, and affecting to regard the other with great interest. And when I learn the particular direction in which you intend to shape your course, I shall be the better able to advise and guide you. There are many ways to fortune. Mine should be the shortest if I had any choice, the young man rejoined with a smile. Right, quite right, the crafty knight returned. All men would take that road if they could find it. But with some, the shortest road would not be the safest. In your case, I think it might be different. You have a sufficiently good mien and a sufficiently good figure to serve you in lieu of other advantages. Your fair speech would put me in conceit with myself, worthy sir, the young man rejoined with a well-pleased air. Were I not too conscious of my own demerits, not to impute what you say of me to good nature or to flattery. There you wrong me, my good young friend. On my credit you do. Were I to resort to adulation, I must strain the points of compliment to find phrases that should come up to my opinion of your good looks. And as to my friendly disposition towards you, I have already said that your attentions have won it, so that mere good nature does not prompt my words. I speak of you as I think. May I, without appearing too inquisitive, ask from what part of the country you come? I am from Norfolk, worthy sir, the young man answered, where my life has been spent among a set of men wild and uncouth, and fond of the chase as the Sherwood archers we read of in the ballads. I am the son of a broken gentleman, the lord of a ruined house, with one old servant left me out of fifty kept by my father, and with scarce a hundred acres that I can still call my own, out of the thousands swept away from me. Still I hunt in my father's woods, kill my father's deer, and fish in my father's lakes, since no one molests me and I keep up the little church near the old tumble-down hall in which are the tombs of my ancestors, and where my father lies buried. And the tenantry come there yet on Sundays, though I am no longer their master, and my father's old chaplain, Sir Oliver, still preaches there, though my father's son can no longer maintain him. A sad change, truly, Sir Francis said, in a tone of sympathy, and with a look of well-feigned concern and attributable, I much fear, to riot and profusion on the part of your father, who so beggared his son. Not so, sir, the young man gravely replied. My father was a most honorable man, and would have injured no one, much less the son on whom he doted. Neither was he profuse, but lived bountifully and well, as a country gentleman, with a large estate should live. The cause of his ruin was that he came within the clutches of that devouring monster, which, like the insatiate dragon of Rhodes, has swallowed up the substance of so many families that our land is threatened with desolation. My father was ruined by that court which, with a mockery of justice, robs men of their name, their fame, their lands and goods, which perverts the course of law and saps the principles of equity, which favors the knave and oppresses the honest man, which promotes and supports extortion and plunder, which reverses righteous judgments and asserts its own unrighteous supremacy, 
which, by means of its commissioners, spreads its hundred arms over the whole realm to pillage and destroy, so that no one, however distant, can keep out of its reach or escape its supervision, and which, if it be not uprooted, will, in the end, overthrow the kingdom. Need I say my father was ruined by the star chamber? Hush, hush, my good young sir, Sir Francis cried, having vainly endeavored to interrupt his companion's angry denunciation. Pray heaven your words have reached no other ears than mine. To speak of the star chamber as you have spoken is worse than treason. Many a man has lost his ears and been branded on the brow for half you have uttered. Is free speech denied in this free country? The young man cried in astonishment. Must one suffer grievous wrong and not complain? Certes, you must not condemn the star chamber, or you will incur its censure, Sir Francis replied in a low tone. No court in England is so jealous of its prerogatives, nor so severe in punishment of its maligners. It will not have its proceedings canvassed, or its judgments questioned. For the plain reason that it knows they will not bear investigation or discussion, such is the practice of all arbitrary and despotic rule. But will Englishmen submit to such tyranny? Again, let me counsel you to put a bridle on your tongue, young sir. Such matters are not to be talked of at public tables, scarcely in private. It is well you have addressed yourself to one who will not betray you. The star chamber hath its spies everywhere. Meddle not with it as you value liberty. Light provocation arouses its anger, and once aroused, its wrath is all-consuming. End of chapter 4